Chapter 15, School Again After Horace's and the good bishop's death, my drinking continued, and I was smoking pot more, but I was still in control of things, so I thought. I still wrote notes to myself, even when I was in a drunken stupor. These little pieces of dated paper would later become the breadcrumbs that would lead me out of the deep, dark forest I was unknowingly about to enter. I was about to descend upon the gates of hell. My untouchable husband, the man with whom I could never be with, came back into my life and brought a total stranger with him. He introduced me to another world, a world whose only God was called crack cocaine, ruled day and night without mercy on his willing and and obedient subjects. I tried it without any feeling of guilt. I felt nothing the first time, the second or third time. But the first time I got high on crack, it was an unforgettable moment. I must say unforgettable, least I forget and repeat the same mistake again. I was suddenly swept into this new world, a lot like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. When I took this quantum leap, the characters and the scenes were different from anything I had ever seen in my life. It was like a scene in the movies or on the evening news, the darker side of the city. The language was new to me. The characters were dark and suspicious. This part of the story is bringing out so many emotions. It's hard to write about the way I lived and the things I did without being angry with myself. There weren't any nice words or any ways to sugarcoat what I'm trying to put on paper. Excuse my choice of words in some instances, but that's the way it was. I've got to be truthful to myself. None of my family members knew about my drug habit at first, but as I got deeply involved with it, I think they knew, but didn't know what to do about it. Larry and I had always smoked pot together, but once I started smoking crack, pot couldn't feel the bill. It would be like giving soda to an alcoholic. I didn't want it. Larry had an idea what I was doing, but I stayed away from him as much as possible in the beginning. I was always busy, or I'd pretend that Anthony and I were really trying to make our marriage work, and I wanted to be faithful to him. Anthony would always bring the drugs home, and we'd smoke after the boys were asleep. They were teenagers now, so they stayed up longer. This made it hard to smoke at home. Then one night, he introduced me to his dealer. We met at a motel further on the south side of town, not very far from where we lived. The dealer was a girl named Misha. Her hair was long and very thick. That's all I could see of her in the dark parking lot. But after we got to the room, 
Her appearance startled me. She looked like a thin and bony dope thing. As I got to know her, she didn't look so bad. Or maybe with time, I began to look a lot like her. She had been a very pretty girl. I'll never forget her face. Misha was a dealer who was using the drugs she was supposed to be selling. I was nervous when we went into the motel room. There were three other people in the room waiting to get high. Misha had the goods that everyone waited for. We took a seat and waited our turn. I thought we were just going to buy the crack and were going to leave. When I watched the others get their hit from Misha, I knew that this was going to be different. In the past, I always put the dope on the pipe and hit it with the light of myself. Now, I was about to get instructions on the proper way to smoke crack. When it was my turn, Misha held the pipe and the rock in her hands for a long time. She wanted to let everybody know who I was and how good of a hit she was going to give me. I waited patiently, and finally she gave me the pipe and a large piece of crack. This is going to be a damn good hit. I'm going to do this shit right for you, baby. She said this as I pushed the rock in the blackened pipe. It seems like a marriage ceremony between the rock and me. And in a sense, it was. She put the lighter on the pipe and said, pull the smoke in slow and hold it. I sucked in the smoke as I heard the sizzling sound of the rock being burned in the pipe. After holding the smoke in for a while, I exhaled it slowly and let the smoke blow through my nose. That's the way you do that shit. That bitch is a good hit, ain't it, baby? She said this as I reached the most euphoric high. My ears stopped up, and for a moment I went totally deaf. There was no one in the world except me. My tongue felt very thick, and I couldn't speak. This was it. This was a lick, as they called it. I thought I felt the lick when I smoked at home with Anthony, but this time was totally different. I can't explain it. Misha holding the lighter and talking to me was like the difference between masturbating and having sex with a skillful lover. Misha, the experienced addict, had a way of bringing me to this euphoric place. I don't know how long we stayed at the motel that night. Different people, different groups of people came and went. And Misha did the same routine with everybody. I hit the pipe at least two times before we decided to leave, but not before buying at least $100 worth of dope on credit to take home with us. The ride home was long. Neither of us said a word. We anticipated the calling of the rock, knowing the effect would not be the same without Misha holding the lighter to the pipe and coaching on the sidelines. We tried to get a good hit off the rock as many times as possible, but there was always some distraction. 
Anthony was a paranoid type when he got hired. Every time I was ready to hit the pipe, he'd tell me to wait because somebody was coming. He'd peep out of the window off and on all night or say the kids were at our door. If he heard any sirens in the distance, he would freak out and say, Fuck, the cops done followed us home. They gonna bust us. Sometimes he'd flush the dope down the to toilet, tried to run from the cops that he imagined. I'd be ready to kill him. There wasn't any room for mistakes, friends, or love in this exclusive and expensive world. Sex wasn't a part of this equation either. If it happened at all, the sole purpose was to pacify the emptiness felt after the high was over and all the dope was gone. The only space that existed was a place prepared for the user and his God, nothing else. I'd end up going to the bathroom to try to get high. We usually burned up most of the dope and arguing about who was holding out on the shit. When he went to the bathroom, I'd stand outside and listen for the sizzle of the rock being burned on his pipe. If I heard it, I knew he was holding out. In turn, he'd do me the same way. I'd hold out as much as I could, especially when it was late and Misha couldn't get any more dope. By the end of the night, I'd find myself crawling on the floor, looking for any crumbs of the shit that may have fallen. Daybreak would finally unlock the chains that held us prisoners of the night, only to let us pine away in the daylight like vampires afraid of the sunlight. The evening dawned again, always finding us fiending for the white crystal, crystal like the fresh red blood of the undead fiction demons of the night. They eagerly waited. We really lived the life of the so-called undead. On payday, we both knew how our night would be spent and couldn't wait for Misha to answer our page. I got it. I got the shit, and it's the lick. That's the words Misha used to let us know the dope was good. Even if it was some sorry shit, she'd say it was a lick. We'd rush over after dark and get our hit from Misha and come home with the rest of the dope. Sometimes there were people at her house that we didn't know. As time passed and we became regulars, we eventually got to know most of our Friday night customers. On Fridays, we pay $100 on our last week's dope bill, and then we get at least another 100 on credit. If we wanted any the next night, Misha and her boyfriend, John, would bring it to us. They always knocked on the bedroom window if we weren't already at the door when they drove up. The nights I stayed up waiting for Misha to come reminded me of how I look out the window when I was a kid while waiting on the ice cream man, Mr. Softy. Misha always came. This is hard to write. I find myself sweating and getting nervous as I frantically search for the words to describe how I felt. I can remember the feeling but I have to press deep in my memory 
and groan to find the right words. The power in the words will resurrect the demons I thought were buried deep in my past. I can remember the hollow space where there is no sound, which later becomes a very lonely prison that releases the imaginary bars only when enough time is served. For me, this seemed to be an eternity. At first, my nights were spent trying to seize and control the power of the white God. I wanted the feeling to last a long time. But like the thrill of a roller coaster ride, it lasted only for a moment, leaving me in awe, totally aware that the ride was over, frustrated, and wanted to experience the thrill again and again. But the ride held me captive in the seat for at least 15 minutes, unable to think or speak clearly. Many times I would hit the pipe before the 15 minutes were up. This would make my blood pressure and body temperature rise. All I wanted to do was feel the same high over and over. I couldn't put the pipe down. God, I feel so sick. How did I let this happen to me? I can't write another word. I've said enough to purge myself and then I'll sleep. In time, I learned to calm my restless spirit by trying to read a few books during the long nights as I watched Anthony roam through the house like a centurion on watch duty. My mind was far from understanding any written words on the pages I quickly turned. I heard my heart beating like the drums of an ancient tribal ritual my mind envisioned. The drums would get louder and louder as I got higher and higher. There were times when I had enough of the pretend reading and wrote notes to myself on the small pieces of paper. Most of the notes seemed to be written by someone else, as if a stranger was talking through me. In some of the notes, I referred to myself as little girl, and others were little sis. In one note, I told myself what my problem was and called my, my addiction a thorn in the flesh. All of these little notes were dated and signed. You'll be okay. Love you. I stick them within the pages of books or some other places as if I were hiding them from myself. There were times when Anthony and I regained our sanity and threw away all the drug paraphernalia. We had made up our minds to stop. I'd clean up the house really good, go to the grocery store, and buy a bill of groceries and actually cook. We started having our regular Sunday dinners again. The bills were getting paid, and the house note was caught up. The boys didn't seem to know what was going on. They were happy as long as they had money for junk food and a new video game. These errors of sobriety didn't last long, and after about a month or so, we were at it again. During these brief intervals of sobriety, I read my Bible and prayed more. I couldn't feel any sense of God. I knew he existed, but he was gone on a long vacation. 
His things were still in the house, so I knew he'd come back someday. Now, I know it was me that took a vacation and left all the memories of God buried deep in my heart. I'd even go to AA meetings with Charlie. He had became an addict too. I got the 30-day chip a couple of times, and when I got a chip, I wanted to celebrate. Another rock would commemorate this event. Each time we started back, we needed more of the drug. It had escalated to as much as $400 a week. I knew I was getting worse with my addiction when I started losing weight. Somehow, Anthony never lost a pound. One Sunday night, I smoked so much dope until my nose started to bleed. My heart was pounding hard as I grabbed my coat and walked outside at 3 o'clock in the morning trying to calm myself. I finally convinced Anthony to take me to the fire station. He was afraid to go, and he thought they would find out what we were doing when, and we would be arrested. Fuck, man, I'm dying. When that happens, you really be in a pot of shit. I screamed as my nose bled profusely. He finally drive, drove me there and stayed in the car. The paramedics was nice and polite. After they took my vitals, they wanted to know what was really going on. I confessed that I had been smoking crack since 6 o'clock that evening and had too much of it. When Anthony saw I was going to the hospital, he came in and gave them a little information. He told them that he was fine and he didn't need to be checked. They rushed me to the hospital and lectured me on getting into a treatment center. The ride in the ambulance was hard and bumpy. They got the IV started and gave me nitroglycerin to help the blood pressure go down. I don't remember how high my blood pressure was, but I heard one paramedic radio to the hospital that I was in stroke zone. After getting checked into the hospitals, the doctor worked with me a long time. Whenever I'd fall asleep, the nurse would wake me up to keep me alert. The, pl- the blood pressure was back to normal, and I was sober again. I sensed the coldness in the way they treated me, even though I had medical insurance. The bright sunlight pierced my eyes as I stumbled into the street after I was released from the safety of the hospital early that morning. I read a few of the pamphlets they gave me about drug and alcohol abuse while I waited for Anthony. There were hotline numbers to call for help. I wouldn't need them because I knew I wasn't ready to quit smoking crack. Anthony didn't even ask me how I was or what the doctor said. His only reply was, you need to quit smoking so fast. Damn, just drink some milk. I'm going to stop smoking with you if you keep this shit up. I yelled back. How the hell can you talk about how I smoke? Fuck, at least I don't trip like you do and peep out the fucking windows all night hearing shit that ain't even there. I wanted to beat him down while he was driving. I was so angry. He gave me this shit. It was like we had a venereal disease that we just kept passing back and forth to each other. I couldn't, I could feel my heart beating fast again. 
and it felt like it was about to burst. I started crying. I knew the crack was going to kill me if I didn't stop. When we got home, Anthony let me out of the car and said, I'm going to work. I got some rock left. Don't fuck with it. I mean, don't fuck with it, Mary. Fuck you, I said. I yelled loudly and slammed the car door. I went to bed and slept for a few hours. It was about 10 o'clock when I woke up. The boys wouldn't be home for hours. That was food for them, and they could take care of themselves. I wanted to smoke crack again. I knew exactly where the dope was and went straight to the pair of shoes he always hid it in. After only a few hours from almost having a stroke, I was at it again. At noon, the shit was all gone. I crawled on the floor as usual, trying to find any pieces that may have fallen. This dope would have to be replaced, and Anthony would have a big fight about this shit. I paged Misha and told her what I did. She told me to come over, and she'd give me some on credit. I had never been with Misha in the daytime and the ride to her house gave me a sense of calmness. I felt secure whenever I smoked with her. She was always calm when she got high and made it look so easy. When I got to the house, I was surprised at the number of cars that were there. A Lexus, a Mercedes, and a Jaguar set in the places where Ragley Jalopitis parked at night. I was even more surprised when I entered the house. The room was filled with men in business attire. The collars were unbuttoned with the neckties loosened and their jackets lay folded neatly over their briefcases. They sat anxiously around the table while waiting for their hit from Misha. She directed me into the living room and said, baby, I'm gonna get with you in a minute. Sit here while I take care of these boys. They got to go back to work. A man <clears throat> was there. And the rest of the guys were just some wannabe big-time office boys still wearing the ghetto mentality on the inside. Misha did the routine with them as usual. And they sat a while looking stupid like everybody else does on crack. When they left, Misha and a girl that I went to high school with named Wanda came in the living room and sat down. Wanda was, uh, was at the hotel that night I met Misha. At first, I didn't recognize her, but when I did, she acted as if she didn't remember me. An old baseball cap covered her eyes as well as her nappy hair while she looked down with a shameful look. Her hair hadn't been combed in days. After realizing how uncomfortable she was when we talked, I said very little to her. Wanda was a quiet type in high school and was still that way now, but she looked much older than I did, even though we were the same age. She was darker and very thin now. The faded jeans, baseball cap, and worn sandals she wore at the hotel that night were the only clothes I'd ever see her wear. The heels of her feet were 
thick and callous. We smoked a while and listened to Misha's story. She started using drugs after the birth of her only daughter when she was just 16. She started with the lightweight stuff and like most people, she graduated to heavier drugs. She tried any drugs that was popular at the time. Now Misha was 32, so she had been using for a long time. Her mother had put her in a lot of rehabs, but nothing seemed to work. Her story got longer as we waited our turn to hit the pipe again. It started getting late and I had to go home, but not without the dope she promised to let me have on credit. Anything, Anthony ain't got to know nothing about this shit, she said as she kissed me on my cheeks and pressed the plastic bag into my hand. It was then when I felt her emotions, the emptiness and the pain we both share, but there was nothing I could do for her. As time passed, I got tired of the way I was living. Anthony was staying away from home more and more and wasn't giving me any money for bills or drugs. I knew he was still using, but doing it somewhere else. Doing contract work at home for an upholstery shop allowed me to pay bills and support my drug habit, and it gave me a lot of freedom. I never had to worry about passing a drug test. When the money got low, I'd hustle some upholstery jobs and work all night to get them out. The next few days was spent partying and smoking dope at Misha's house. With Anthony gone, I had no one to smoke with at home. It was okay smoking at her house, but when it got late, I would leave. The boys were at home, and I still had the responsibility of raising them. Smoking at home alone helped in my recovery. The silence in the room, broken by the loud throbbing of my heart, drove me crazy. Finally, I was able to identify the steps involved in getting high. I looked at myself at each step. I began to remember the way crack made me feel. There were times when I passed by the mirror and would get startled. I had a wild and crazy look on my face. My hair would stick straight out. It looked like I had been electrically shocked. I figured out what happened. After smoking the crack, I would rub my head and pull my hair while trying to calm myself. Then I would sit on the side of the bed and rock back and forth. When all the dope was gone, I'd crawl on the floor looking for crumbs. If I found anything that looked like it, I'd put it on the pipe and try to smoke it. Sometimes I'd put breadcrumbs on the pipe, hoping it was crack. These were the steps I took every time I got high, in that exact order. It was insane to keep doing the same thing over and over, knowing the outcome would still be the same, but I was on the verge of insanity. The last time I saw Misha was in September 1993. I went to our house to get high. Wanda was there as usual. I think she had moved in with her. 
Misha looked really bad. She was so thin. I could see her bones through the sleeveless white lace dress she wore that day. She lay down on a cot most of the time while I was there and appeared to be too weak to move around much. Tears came to my eyes as I watched her hit the pipe. When she tried to hold the lighter for me, her hands trembled. I'm going to get off this shit, Mary. It's killing me. She said this while trying to hold the lighter steady. Yeah, me too, I said as I inhaled the smoke. I didn't want her to see the tears in my eyes. The tears were for both of us. About six o'clock that evening, Misha and I stood on the front porch and watched the traffic. I took a deep breath, exhaled, looked Misha in her eyes and said, I'm never coming back over here, Misha. I promise. You got to get away from here if you're going to get off the shit, Mary. Fuck, I need to. It's hard to beat this shit. And I owe so much money. Hell, I ain't seen Anthony in a long time either. Is he buying his dope from somebody else? Because I know he ain't quit smoking. And you talk about not coming over here no more. Damn, I need some more customers. Misha said this in a really pathetic voice, almost making me feel sorry for her. Hey, I'm gone, I said while opening my car door. Well, I'm getting out of this house next month, moving in with my sister at the Crest Apartments, so keep my beeper number. You know I don't deliver no more. She said this while walking slowly back into the house. Somehow, I knew this would be the last time I'd ever see her. Knowing my life would end up like Misha was one of the reasons a change came up on the horizons of my mind. The drugs were everywhere I looked. My neighbor's son, named Leon, was a heavy user. Sometimes he'd go to the dope house and buy crack for Anthony and me. There were several crack houses within walking distance from where I lived. The broken mini blinds in my bedroom window was a constant reminder of midnight vigils held for Misha and John's arrival. The memory of the rituals was so overpowering until I knew my only salvation would be to leave my home, which was now a dark menagerie of despair and doom that would eventually become a tomb, locking my mind in eternal darkness. The north side of town would be a nice and clean place to live. Drugs wasn't as bad, and more white people lived there, so it was better and safer. The boys would like it too. My oldest son, Keith, had enrolled in the local university, which was on the north side of town. He earned a football scholarship, so he lived on campus and would come home on weekends. A lot of his high school classmates had died violently or were in jail. I worried about him, but he was a good boy and didn't complain a lot. He didn't even get his driver's license until he was 18. A friend of mine sold him his first car for $200. You can imagine what kind of car it was at that price. We always named our cars back then. 
He called the Plymouth Arrow Little Hooped. It was a funny sight to see him driving this little car. He's such a big fellow. My youngest son, Tony, and I were very close. There were times when I'd have a crying spell and lay across his lap like a baby. He'd rub my head and say, things will get better, Mama. You'll be okay. When he said that, I thought about the notes I had written when I was high. I often wondered if they knew about my addiction and didn't know what to say or do about it. They were wonderful kids with a terrible mother. I needed to be sober in their lives. My addiction had become an incurable illness. Much like the cancer that always come back, relapse became my worst fear. Facing the fact that a drug addict was what I had become and what I will always be was very disheartening. I wanted to be able to say I was a drug addict. Even if the AA group didn't believe, believe I should think that way, I know it would take a lot of faith to make these words become true. Take it one day at a time. That was the motto at the AA meetings. I needed to have more than one day of assurance. I needed to know that this disease was a liberated from my life completely. The night needed to be rewarding and a comforted friend that made me feel secure at the end of a righteous day. Instead, the dawn of night was only a constant reminder of the chronic pains of my past that seemed to overtake me with every minute of the clock that ticked ever so slowly after dark. A light was always on in the room where I slept. Sleeping aids such as NyQuil and Tylenol PM helped the night pass quickly. This was a legal alternative and would do until I was healed. Not better, but healed.